0: are starting a brand new series today that I have been looking forward to for quite some time. This series is about uh, stuff that is of great interest to me. And if something is of great interest to me, then of course, it should be of great interest to you. you know, isn't that how that works? Well, I don't know if that's the case or not. But this series has been on my radar for quite some time now. And I'm be honest with you, I've, I've never preached a sermon series quite like this one before. So it's a little bit of a journey into the unknown for all of us. But if it turns out like I think it will, and in my mind's eye how I see it turning out, then I believe that it will be of great value to your walk with Jesus, and it will bring a lot of assurance to what you have come to believe by faith. I also believe and hope that if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus yet, and I know in our church family, we have folks here that's like, I don't know, I'm kind of on the Bible, uh, the bubble when it comes to the Bible. And I'm not sure if I believe all that yet. Maybe you're here for a lot of other reasons or for whatever. I I think that this series is going to be of great value to you as well. You might be thinking, I'm not sure I believe all this stuff about the church and about Christianity, but I hope this helps you on your journey and that the Lord will use it to help bring some clarity and some focus in on the things that you have questions about. I'm calling this series "Unearth," and here's the premise of the whole series. We're going to spend the next few weeks together examining some of the greatest archaeological discoveries um, uh, that we know about. Some of the the greatest artifacts ever discovered. And we're gonna allow these artifacts that we have unearthed to come alongside of the Bible to help support it and to prove its authenticity and the reliability of God's Word. I'm talking about a field of of discovery that is often referred to to as biblical archaeology. Biblical archaeology. What is archaeology exactly? Well, archaeology in a very technical sense is this. It's the study of human history through the excavation of sites and other you know, analysis of artifacts and physical remains. That is archeology. archaeology. In other words, they dig up stuff from the past and they learn everything they can from it. Sounds like an old girlfriend, doesn't it? No, I'm just kidding, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm here helping all the skeptics. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's a biblical archaeology. You dig up stuff from the past and you learn everything you can from it. Biblical archaeology, on the other hand, is all of those things. But specifically, it's the past that is related to the, the time when the biblical texts were formed. In other words, it's digging up all the stuff from the past that pertains to the Bible. All right? That is biblical archaeology and let me tell you this is a growing field of study and right now as we're talking about it there are many 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 archaeologists spread all over the lands of the bible digging up stuff really almost on a daily basis making these discoveries that help us understand the context of the bible but also proving the bible to be true now let me ask you a question why is that a big deal why is it a big deal that they are digging up stuff all over the world that's uh, proving the Bible to be true? It's a big deal because as a Christian, we believe the Bible is the very word of God. The, the Bible makes this claim about itself, that all scripture is god breathe. which means that God is influenced, and, and this is all about God's word. Jesus said this, that... Uh, You know, blessed is the man who doesn't just hear these words of mine, but also the one that hears them and puts them into practice. Where do we find Jesus' words? Right here in God's, in the Bible. And the guy that does that, that puts Jesus' words into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We believe the Bible is true, but not everybody else in this world believes that, do they? I have no doubt that all of you have had conversations with people who have made these kind of claims about the Bible. That's a legend, That's a myth. Those stories aren't true. You you listen to a lot of your your educated scholars today and your educational communities and much of the media and people in general. They would look at the Bible and they would say, you know what, I think that's an interesting book that's got a lot of fairy tales written inside of its pages. Now, how many of you have ever had somebody say something like that to you? Yeah, the Bible, I think it's just fairy tales. I don't know if I can believe that stuff. So they downplay the importance of it and its relevance. In fact, the Bible itself is the most attacked book in the world, and as we learned in the book of Genesis, when we were studying that, Genesis is the most attacked book of the Bible But this book in general is the most attacked Bible in world history. However, we and millions of Christians for generations upon generations have believed that the Bible is the very words of God and we accept it as truth. I accept every word of this Bible as truth and I believe it to the very core of my being and that is important for you to know as me being the preacher of your church. You need to know that about me. I believe that this is God breathed, God inspired and all of it is from him. That's what I believe, okay? That's what I believe. So I accept it as truth. I believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe that God created all of mankind, all the humans, everything on the earth. I believe that God had a grand vision for this world and it was marred by sin. I believe that God destroyed the world with a worldwide flood covering the whole planet, saving only Noah and his family. I believe Noah repopulated, God used him to repopulate the earth, but sin was still a problem. And then all the Old Testament catalogs God's interaction with man all leads us to Jesus, God coming in the flesh, the incarnation. I believe that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose back to life. I believe that today Jesus is the head of the church and it's only through Jesus that that he has provided the only way to salvation, the only way to have this sin problem fixed. He's the head of the church, we are living in the last days, and Jesus will return. I believe that. On faith, And the Bible tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, you cannot be a Christian. Without faith, you cannot be what God wants you to be. Now, biblical archaeology, what that is doing for us, however, is that it is adding supportive layers to our faith. So we have the baseline, this is what we believe, but archeology span comes alongside of that and it's supporting some layers to support the things that we believe. In fact, archeologists are digging up stuff all the time that refutes direct criticism of the Bible. I could catalog for you all the times that critics have said, that can't be true because of this. And then they dig something up and they're like, oh, well they gotta retract what they just said. Because archeology span doesn't lie, it tells the truth. The Bible preserves for us, through archaeology, an accurate recounting of history addressed in the pages of the Bible. Archaeology is always confirming for us that there are events, that there are people, there are places in the Bible that actually turned out to be historical. That's what archaeology continues to prove. Now, for me, biblical archaeology inspires my walk with Christ this way. It constantly reminds me that my faith is grounded in things that I can actually see. That's what biblical archeology span does for me. It grounds me, inspires me that my faith is grounded in things that I can see. It's not as blind as you might think. So for the next few weeks, I'm gonna show you some fascinating biblical archeological discoveries Specifically, I'm going to show you how the stuff they're digging up out of the ground from the past, how they intersect with God's word, and how they can inspire your walk with Christ, reminding you that faith is grounded in things that you can actually see. Think of the next few weeks together like this. Indiana Jones, he finds a clue that leads him on this great quest filled with awesome discoveries, and convinces him that everything that he ever read in the Bible turned out to be actually true. And not only that, but as he digs and he discovers, he learns that there's a stronger case being made every day for the truthfulness and the validity of God's word. That is biblical archeology. span And some of what I'm gonna show you today and in the weeks ahead is gonna blow you away. I believe some of you are gonna walk out of here and your faith is gonna be like mine. I'm so invigorated by what I've seen. Others of you did not even know this existed. And I'm gonna show you some stuff and you're gonna be like, I didn't even know. That was there, and it's gonna inspire you. Some of you, I would suspect, are gonna be introduced to something during this series, and you're gonna go, and you're gonna go deep dive in your own discovery. You're gonna get some books. You're gonna read some articles. You're gonna go online. You're gonna watch YouTube videos. You're gonna get into this, and about a month from now, you're gonna come and tell me what you're discovering. I suspect that's gonna happen. But I think maybe most importantly for me, my prayer is this, that if there's any of you here today or watching online or may watch this a year from now or two years from now, whatever, I pray and hope that this series will help move you specifically from skepticism to faith in Jesus Christ. So to kick off this series, I'd like you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, all right? Second, I'm gonna give you a minute to find that, and that's where we're gonna be spending our time today. We're not gonna read all these chapters. I want you to look at 2 Kings chapters 18, 19, and 20. 2 Chronicles, we're actually gonna start in chapter 28, but we're gonna go all the way to 32, and like, we're not, like I say we're not gonna read all this, but we're just gonna be familiar with all this. But if you wanna go back and like fill in all the gaps after we're done today, This is where you're going to want to read. I want to introduce you today to one of Israel's greatest kings. And when I say Israel's greatest kings, we automatically go to King David, King Solomon, don't we? I want to tell you about a king that came quite a few generations later. His name is King Hezekiah, and he too is considered one of Israel's greatest kings. King Hezekiah reigned during the time that Israel was divided. So Israel split in half. You have the northern kingdoms of Israel and they kept the name Israel. And you have the southern kingdom of Israel and they kept the name Judah. To keep it simple, I want you to think of where is Jerusalem? It's in Judah, and that's where Hezekiah was the king. He became king at the ripe old age of 25 years of age, and he took over for his father Ahaz, and let me tell you, his father Ahaz was one of the worst kings that Israel ever had. He was just, I mean, his list of, of missteps is long, but let me just tell you what he's known for the most in angering the Lord, is he turned Israel away from God and pointed him towards idol worship. It says in 2 Corinthians, 28, verse 24. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them into pieces, okay? If you know anything about the Old Testament and how God set up the temple, that's a big time no-no. He took all the temple stuff and he chopped it up. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and he set up altars at every street corner of Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places, and burn sacrifices to other gods and arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. So can we all agree? Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, is not a good person. So, when Hezekiah becomes king at age 25, where did he get such great faith? I'm not really sure, but he was not cut from the mold of his father. He loved the Lord, he honored the Lord, and he wanted to do everything that God wanted him to do. So, on day one as king, he started to undo everything. That his father had done. Second Chronicles chapter twenty-nine verse three says this: In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. What you need to know is he's setting everything back in motion. He's tearing down everything that his father had done, and he's like, "I'm going to restore Israel to the way God wanted it." So, if you read 2 Chronicles chapter twenty-nine and chapter thirty, they catalog everything that Hezekiah did to put it in order. And when you get to chapter 31, he was all done and it says this. When all of this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the asterisk poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh. After they had destroyed all of them, The Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property. So I wanna show you something very cool. This is the backdrop of King Hezekiah. This is how his reign as king started by destroying everything that his dad had done. Hezekiah had built, had torn down all these altars that his father had built. And during excavations in the town of Beersheba, Beersheba's the name we come across at some time, sometimes in the Bible. It's a little bit south of Jerusalem. They're excavating, and when I say excavating, they're excavating what looks like a hill, all right? In Israel, civilizations were built on top of civilizations. They were built, destroyed, built, destroyed, built, destroyed, and so you got layers of civilization. So what looks like a hill might have thousands of years of history in its ground. So they found Beersheba and they're digging there and archeologists found these blocks. And as they dug more, they like, wait a minute, these blocks kind of look like they go together. So all of these blocks were obviously had been torn apart. It used to be something else. And all of these blocks were used in what archeologists call secondary construction projects. In other words, it's still good block. Let's make a wall out of it. Let's put a foundation of a home. And so they found this, these pieces. And when they put them back together, they were shocked to find out that they had just rebuilt one of these altars built to a pagan god by King Ahaz. It's an altar that King Hezekiah had torn to pieces. This is cool, all right? Now, for a nerd like me, this is really cool. Why is this so cool? It's cool because that right there is sitting in a museum and it connects actions from 2,700 years ago from a godly king to set things in order by God. And that is a museum piece that you can look at as a physical thing you can see of something that actually happened and recorded in the Bible. But friends, it gets a whole lot better than this. All right, This is just to warm you up a little bit, okay? This is, this is, this is nothing compared to what we're about to see. But I find this really cool. It's a direct link to actions taken by a godly king 2,700 years ago. Now, a little bit later, the Bible tells us that Hezekiah, he sets everything in, in order, and, and it pleases the Lord, and then he gets deathly ill. He gets so sick that he's sure he is going to die. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. now, you ever heard of Isaiah? Of course, many of us heard of Isaiah. He is the God's prophet, who is the prophet while Hezekiah is king. And God used prophets like Isaiah and others to deliver messages to the king. So Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die. You are not going to recover. Now that's not good news. I would never want to receive that news, would you? Prophet of God says you are going to die and Hezekiah immediately goes to God in prayer and essentially begs for his life. Lord, you know how I've served you. You know how I've tried to do everything I can for you. And God hears that prayer and immediately answers it. So, Isaiah delivers the bad news and Isaiah is walking home and God says, "Hold on, Isaiah, turn around and go back." So, he's, all right. So, he goes back to King Hezekiah he says, "God changed his mind. He's actually going to give you 15 more years of life." and God is gonna give you a sign to accompany, uh, to accompany this great thing he's gonna do for you. Second Kings chapter 20 verse nine says this. Isaiah answered, this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he's promised. What did the Lord promise? I'll give you 15 more years of life. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? It is simple matter for the shadow to go forward 10 steps, said Hezekiah. Rather, have it go back 10 steps. Then the prophet Isaiah called on the Lord and the Lord made the shadow go back. The 10 steps, it had gone down the stairway of Ahaz. Do you understand what we are reading right here? God's like, I'm gonna give you a sign that proves to you that what I'm telling you is the truth. You're gonna get 15 more years and I'm gonna give you a choice. You know that stairway of Ahaz that you guys used to tell time when the shadow goes down, you know what time it is? You want the shadow to go the normal way or do you want the shadow to go backwards, which would be an astronomical miracle? And Hezekiah is like, have it go backwards. And that's exactly what happened. The shadow went backwards. Did God reverse the rotation of the earth or move the sun? What did God do to make that happen? Or was this just a simple phenomenon that defied the laws of nature for that exact spot in that moment that only Hezekiah could see? I don't know the answer to that, but what I do know is that my God is capable of doing either of those things. When that happened, when when Hezekiah watched the shadow go backwards up the steps instead of down throughout the course of the day, he knew that that was the sign he would get 15 more years of life. And let me ask you a question, if that had happened to you, how would you respond to that? Would you keep that inside or would you wanna tell the world somehow? Would you want to tell everybody in your kingdom, "God gave me 50 more years of life, so I can do anything I want for the next 15 years, I can't die." Or I don't know. I don't know what I'd say. <laughs> but he, I, I believe that He honored the Lord in this in a very specific way. I want to show you something that I find absolutely remarkable. In 2015, archaeologists were excavating in an area that sits between the city of David and the Temple Mount. It's this area down here with the little yellow circle around it. They were excavating that area for, you know, for our sakes, just remember, it's in Jerusalem. And we'll just keep it simple, high level, it's in Jerusalem. But technically it sits between the Temple Mount and and the city of David. And this is an area that has not been excavated much until recently. And uh, they're finding all kinds of incredible things in this little piece of ground right here. And one of the things they found in 2015 is what we would refer to as a clay seal. Um, It's an impression made in clay. Um, Sometimes in archaeology, they call these bulas, and they found bulas um, all over Israel. Um, Back in the day, when a king wanted to write a letter, or anybody, they would write it, and then they would roll up this letter, and they would wrap string around it, and then they would put either clay, or they would put wax on top of the the string. And then, um, now this is a very enlarged version of one. And then the king would come along, or whoever, with his ring, his signet ring, and he would stamp it into the impression, okay, into the seal, And when he pulled it out, it left the impression, and you would know if you got this letter, this is from so-and-so. Think of it like a royal return address, all right? That's what this is. This is who it's from. And so they found one of these impressions left. So in other words, a letter was open, the seal was popped off, and it didn't break, and and they, they have it. So they're excavating in 2015, and they're excavating in this area that they determined was kind of a dumping site. So royal administrators, officials, they would throw garbage in this area, and they're undoing this garbage, they're sifting through it, and they find this seal, this this bulla, if you will. And, um, And it's been there for 2,700 years. So in other words, they're discarding their old trash, that's what they think, and, and it got under the ground somehow. And then over time, it got buried. And then, and that's where it was. Eventually, this whole area got buried underground. This was in the ground 700 years before Jesus was born. That's how long it has been. So they find this thing, and it's only one centimeter across. It's a very small, small little bula, And they found it by sifting the dirt, which is a typical archeological thing. I've done it before. You scoop up dirt, and you put it through some screens, and the dirt falls, and the hard stuff stays above. And they found, it. otherwise, they'd probably just, just lost it. That's how small it was. But what's truly remarkable, okay, this is one of those letter seals with the impression. When they cleaned it off, and they began to study it, they made a fascinating discovery. There on the seal itself, you guys can go to the next picture. There on the seal itself, in ancient Hebrew text, it clearly says, now I don't expect any of you to be able to read it like me, but no, no, I I can't, I can't, I can't read it either. But here's what it says. It says, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. What you're looking at is an impression made from the very ring that Hezekiah wore. He did that. But what I find most remarkable about this is that the image that's on this. What you have is you have a picture of the sun shining down on the earth, and you have a sun that has wings connected to it. Can you see it? And on each side of the wings, you have the symbols of life. And archeologists have come to believe and know that this is a symbol of God's protection, but other biblical archeologists have suggested that perhaps this is Hezekiah's way of talking about the incredible miracle of the shadow. This is maybe, they think, maybe this is his seal after he was healed and promised 50 more years of life. Because why would the sun have wings on it unless he believed the miracle of the shadow going backwards? That he believed that God was in control of this astronomical miracle? We don't know for sure, but it sure makes you go, huh, at a bare minimum, this right here is a direct link, a physical link, verifying a king in the Bible who was a real person who led real people in a real city during a real time recorded in the Bible. And it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Perhaps the most defining moment of Hezekiah's life learned was when he learned that the king of Assyria, his name is King Sennacherib, was planning to invade Judah. So he learns this news and he had enough warning that he had time to fortify the city of Jerusalem and he needed to protect the water coming into Jerusalem. The Gihon Spring is a well-known spring even today in Israel, it provides water for the city of Jerusalem. The only problem back in Hezekiah's time was that the spring, the natural spring of water that came up out of the ground, it started outside the city walls. That's a problem if you're about to be invaded, isn't it? Because the invading army can come, circle your city, cut off your supply of water, your access to water, and you die of thirst, you dehydrate. And, um, and in this land, it doesn't take long to do that. So Hezekiah was like, we need to figure out our water problem. If they're coming to attack, let's figure out the water problems. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, look back down to verse one, after Hezekiah had done, so faithfully done, sent a cherub, King of Assyria came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. So in other words, he's just wasting away everybody in Israel. That's what he was doing. He's invading the whole country. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his military officials, staff about, catch his part, blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the streams that flowed through the land. Why should the king of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then they worked hard at repairing the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. He also made large number of weapons and shields. If you were to flip over to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, it says more. As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all of his achievements and how he made a pool and the tunnel, do you you see that? And the tunnel by which he brought water into the city Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? We are reading scripture right here in the Old Testament about blocking off water and about protecting the water and about bringing the water into the city, from outside the city into it. And they're talking about a tunnel that was used to do it. The scripture that they're referring to here in the Bible actually is not so much a tunnel, it's more like an ancient aqueduct. And it was discovered in the year 1838 by a man named Edwin Robinson. This tunnel is known today as Hezekiah's Tunnel. And even to this day, 2,700 years later, there is still water flowing from the Gihon Spring through this tunnel. All the are doing the exact thing that it was designed to do. This is the exact tunnel that we just read about in the Bible. They dug it to protect the water from the invading Assyrians. Now, I was in Israel back in 2017 and we could have walked this tunnel. Do you realize that you can go to Israel today and you can walk down this 1,750 foot long tunnel and just out of curiosity, has anybody done it? One person here, two, you all are braver than me. Let me just tell you this. This tunnel is 1,750 feet long and it's windy. And it's completely dark, and it's 150 feet underground. All right, and they did this 2,700 years ago, and you can today, just like this person is in the picture. You can go to Israel and you can walk this tunnel. I've stood on the on the outside of each end of this tunnel, but you can walk it if you want, if you're crazy enough to do it, and um, you will get wet the whole way. How how deep was the water when you guys did it? You don't remember. Oh, you were there. But you go, okay. So sometimes the water is ankle deep and sometimes it's waist deep. And this is not a big tunnel and I'm like too claustrophobic and I'm like, "Nah, not going to do it." And but anyway, a lot of people do this. But what you're looking at this picture, it is an artifact that you can walk through that directly links you to actions taken spoken of in the Bible. Now, in the year 1880, there was a boy that was walking through this tunnel. It doesn't sound like anything a little boy would do, is it? No, he'd walking through the tunnel. And he inadvertently made a discovery that nobody knew was there. He found on the wall, he was feeling along the wall, and he came across ancient inscriptions carved into the wall. Okay. Now this has since been removed. It's on display in a museum, but this is called the Siloam Inscription. And what this does, you know, can't you read it? You can decipher it right now, can't you? You just read the word. But in Hebrew, what it does, these six lines of text commemorate the completion of this wall back at 2,700 years ago. And it talks about how two groups of people started at opposite ends of this tunnel. And one started outside by the Gihon spring and the other started inside the city walls and they started to dig towards one another. And it describes how they got within three cubits of one another and they could hear the axis picking at the wall and they knew they were close. And they finally broke through and then they, they carved this into the wall right where the two tunnels connected from both sides as a comm- to commemorate this great feat, and it was a great feat. I mean, you're talking about a feat of engineering that would still be difficult for today with all of our technology. It's not a straight tunnel. This thing winds around, and it talks about how they followed a fissure in the rock, and it took them, and, and, it's, and it's graded, so the water flows from the Gihon Springs into Jerusalem. It is Amazing. So Hezekiah protects the water, and you can see how he did it to this very day. And then did you catch the part where he built more walls? 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 5. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. This other wall, they actually found it. Back in the 1970s, over in Israel, they're building a road. Now, building in Israel has got to be one of the most frustrating things you can do. You think we got a lot of rules and permits? You, got, you have to have an archaeologist go with you whenever you dig into the ground. So they're building a road, and they found something of great significance. They found a section of none other than Hezekiah's other wall that was being recorded right here in Second Chronicles 32, verse 5. This is the wall that he built in a great big hurry. And you can see, you can see how it is in the Holy Land. This is, you know, it's been built upon, built upon, built upon, built upon, destroyed. And so when they dig down, they find stuff like this. They found Hezekiah's other wall. And they can tell that it was built very quickly. The Bible even says that he quickly built this wall. And it was to protect himself from the invading armies. Now what's really fascinating about this wall, you can't really see it in this picture, but uh, there's even aspects of this wall that verify other parts of scripture. At the base of this wall they found evidence of ancient house foundations all right there's underneath this wall they're like this thing was built on top of houses where have we read that before remember the prophet isaiah he actually criticized hezekiah for building the wall the way he did why did he criticize him isaiah chapter 22 verse 10 says this you counted the buildings in jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall in other words Isaiah is saying, "You used imminent domain, and it was wrong, all right? That's what it is. you tore down people's houses to build this wall, and you can see the foundation of those houses at the bottom of this wall." Well, you know, if you keep reading the biblical account of King Hezekiah, we learned that the Assyrians did indeed sack all of Israel. Um, they destroyed, completely obliterated the northern kingdoms of Israel hauled off people, and a lot of them fled to Jerusalem for safety, which is why he had to build the other wall to begin with because the population swelled. Sennacherib, he sacked all the cities of, Jerusalem, or of of Israel and specifically Judah, and he conquered the city of Lachish. Now Lachish is probably a town you haven't heard of, but it's down here at the bottom of this map. Can you guys see it or on the screens? This is Lachish. Now, many archaeologists believe that in Bible times, Lachish was even more fortified and more powerful than Jerusalem. So to lose Lachish, that's a big one. And so here you have the armies of the Assyrians. They are finished up at Lachish. They've sacked it. And now they just got to go to Jerusalem. And that's where King Hezekiah is at. And it's at this point Hezekiah makes... A decision. The decision basically is, I don't think I can beat King Sennacherib and his army. Even protecting the walls, protecting the water, I don't know if I can do it. Maybe I can buy him off. So look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them, So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish, okay? Now, Lachish today looks just like a hill, remember? Things have been built, destroyed, built, destroyed, and and they've excavated Lachish. So this this is where the king is at. Now, the victory at Lachish for the king of Assyria was such a huge victory that he took so much pride in conquering this fortified city of Lachish in Judah that when he went back to his palace after the war, and his palace is located in Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrians. Ever heard of Nineveh before? All right, Jonah, all right. So this is his capital city, so he builds his palace, and in his palace, he decorates all of his walls and all the rooms with all the mighty feats that uh, he wants the world to know. And front and center in his palace is this uh, carving, they call it the Lachish Relief, of all his activities in the city of Lachish. It was a big deal to him that he conquered this city. They have excavated his palace in Nineveh, and they found these, uh, s- these uh, stone wall panels, if you will, with these intricate carvings. It's considered to this day some of the finest art they've ever found from ancient times. And it tells the story of all of his, his activities. So this is, this is not a godly person. This is somebody that the Bible writes about, but they're digging up his palace all those miles away that is corresponding with things that happened in the Bible. And so as they got to studying these things even deeper, they found that there's a part of his wall that was specifically dedicated to Lachish, and I want you to see it. It's gonna be a little hard for you to see, but in this relief wall that they dug out of his palace, it's on display in a museum, you have King Sennacherib right here sitting on his throne, you have his commander, and then all the people bowing down are the citizens of Lachish. They're the Jews. This was front and center in his palace. This was one of his greatest victories and he wanted the world to know it. You know, it's interesting that what do we have here? What are we looking at? We are looking at a non-biblical source verifying details that the Bible writes about. That's a big deal. Now just think about that for just a minute. They've actually excavated the old city of Lachish, and you know what they found when they did? They found evidence of an ancient Assyrian siege ramp. They found hundreds of Assyrian arrowheads and approximately the bones of 1,500 people. So, what these relief walls show us, they show us the military might, military strategy armor, weapons, and when they excavated Lachish, they see some of the same things in the rubble that you see on the relief set. So here's the king of Assyria. He's hanging out at Lachish. He's got one more city to destroy, and that's when Hezekiah, he's fortified the walls, he's fortified his water, and he tries to strike a deal. Now look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 14. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. Okay, you understand? He's in Jerusalem, and he sends a message. Probably the message had was wrapped up with a seal, I guess. I have done wrong, he says. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver. Lock that away. 30 talents of gold. Remember these numbers. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord in the treasuries of the royal palace. So basically Hezekiah is emptying the coffers of Jerusalem and giving it to the king of Assyria because he's hoping that he'll go away and leave him alone. Do you think that worked? No, it didn't. If you keep reading... In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, after that happened, after he paid tribute, the king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish... To Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And what you're going to read over the next chapter or two is this back and forth between uh, King Sennacherib and King Hezekiah. And basically, King Sennacherib's Sine- men just mock the Israelites. They make fun of God and they tell the people of, of Jerusalem, Hezekiah is going to lead you to your death, but if you come with us, we're going to provide a great life for you. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't pay attention to his God. And they're mocking. And, and Hezekiah hears all of this and he tears his clothes. He re- realizes that paying him off didn't work and he tears his clothes, he goes into the temple and he prays to God and he sends his key officials to go find Isaiah the prophet and there's this great back and forth, you need to read all about it but this is what Isaiah said so when all this happened, 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 5, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah Isaiah said to them, tell your master, in other words, go tell Hezekiah this is what the Lord says the Lord says this Do not be afraid of what you have heard. They had a whole chapter of blaspheme and and mockery. God says, do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words of which the, catch this part, underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. In other words, God's saying, those low levels of his kingdom are trying to make fun of me. Do not listen to them. Listen, here is what Listen, he, when he hears, okay, when King Sinasherum hears a certain report that's about to happen, I will make him want to return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with a sword. Now, this is a very specific prophet. I mean, this is God saying, don't be afraid. King Sinasherum is gonna hear something here real soon and when he hears it, he's gonna run away and then I'm gonna kill him when he gets home. That's God, that's our God, that's our God. You read all about it sometime, but here's what happened. Second Kings 19, verse 35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. If archeology span proves the Bible to be true, and this is true of our God, that he sends an angel and wipes out 185,000 people that are trying to sack his chief city, is there anything that we really have to fear in this world? So when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrawal, that was the news he heard, all your soldiers are dead. He returned to Nineveh, and stayed there, just like God said would happen. So he goes back home, and he builds his palace and details all of his victories on his walls. That's what he does. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Sarazer, killed him with the sword. Who said that? God said it's gonna happen. And they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Eshterhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. So he goes home after this defeat, builds his palace, celebrates himself. In 1830, while excavating the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, okay, so archeologists are digging it up, a man by the name of Robert Taylor made a fascinating discovery. He found in the ruins of the palace of King Sennacherib, he found a clay prism and this clay prism found in Nineveh details all the history of King Sennacherib. Now there's, there's, uh, there's three of these that they have found, but this is the one that was actually found in Nineveh. And evidently, they used to make tons of these. And they would send them out to all the cities of the kingdom and it would tell everybody, all the citizens, all that King Sennacherib have done. Three of them have survived Now, included on this prism, in the third column, it discusses, guess what? King Sennacherib's campaign into Judah and his war with King Hezekiah in the year 701 BC. This history is written by King Sennacherib himself. So you know that it's gonna be biased, right? It's biased, but it confirms, what's fascinating is it confirms the account of the Bible. So here you have a prism dug up in a foreign country by a pagan king writing his own history, and guess what? It corresponds with 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and Isaiah. Now, they've deciphered this prism, and I want to share some of the things that it says related to King Hezekiah. Now, remember, this is King Sennacherim, and he's writing about himself. Listen to what he writes on this prism. The fear of my lordly splendor overwhelmed that Hezekiah. Now, doesn't that sound like a, like, a, uh, like a prideful king? But what are we seeing right here? He names a king who is also named in the Bible. A very real person about a real event. The warriors and select troops he had brought in to strengthen his royal city of Jerusalem did not fight. Hezekiah there felt the fear of my power, of my arms. Okay, this this guy's into himself, okay. And he sent out to me chiefs and elders of Jerusalem with 30 talents of gold. Where did we read that? We read that right here in the Bible. So his own history verifies Hezekiah tried to buy me off. And then he says and 800 talents of silver. Now, what did the Bible say? The Bible said 300 talents of silver. But what else does it say? Hezekiah emptied all the coffers in the temple. He gave all the the stuff. Maybe Hezekiah didn't add it up, but King Sennacherib did. He gave me 800 talents of silver. The prism says that Hezekiah basically emptied the treasuries and gave them to him. The prism goes on to say this. This is Sennacherib's history. He goes, as for Hezekiah, the Judaite, who had not submitted to my yoke, I surrounded 46 of his strong-walled towns and innumerable small places around them and conquered them by means of, this is his history, earth ramps, siege engines, attack by inframen, mining, breaching, scaling, all the stuff they found when they excavated Lachish. Interesting, isn't it? 200,150 people of all ranks, men and women, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, without number, I brought out all and counted that spoil. Uh, he himself, here's a key part Hezekiah, I shut him up in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. Now, obviously, he's not going to write about the morning he woke up and his entire army was dead. It's very common for kings of this time to not write about their defeats. They've unearthed all kinds of stuff. They only write about their victories. He's writing about his strength. He's not gonna write about how he had to tuck his tail and run home because he had no army left. He's not gonna write about that. The Bible fills in that detail for us. But what he doesn't say is just as telling as what he does say. Because if he had gone on and sacked Jerusalem, don't you think you would've wound up on that prism? Absolutely, He doesn't say that I sacked Jerusalem. The Bible clearly says he did not break into Jerusalem. He ran away without an army. So what does he say? Hezekiah paid me off, and I left him in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. I'm walking home to Nineveh. I'm gonna build my palace. That's what the prism says. What you have here, friends, what I'm showing you, is evidence outside the Bible that verifies the truthfulness, the historicity of the Bible. And that's huge. What did God say was gonna happen to the king? He said, I'm gonna send him home and I'm gonna kill him with a sword. And he dies exactly the way God predicted it. And that is recorded as well in the history of Sennacherim. What does all this mean? Friends, friends, what, what does all of this mean? Some of you, I can see in your faces. You're like, this is fascinating. Others of you, I know what you're thinking. Will there still be chocolate donuts left when we're done here today? I get it, I know. This doesn't scratch every itch of everybody. I get it. But what does this mean? There's, a false, there's an altar to a false god that they dug up in Beersheba that bears all the symbols of it was torn down by Hezekiah. They found Hezekiah's seal or his Bula that links him directly being a real person. It was from his hand that made this Bula. I've got pictures of all these up here. You've got the the seal itself that's got the, the wings on it, on the sun. What does that mean exactly? What does this communicate beyond that that he was a real person? You have Hezekiah's tunnel that you can walk through that tunnel today and it directly links you to events talked about 2,700 years ago in the Bible. You can touch the walls. You can walk through the water. You can feel it. In that tunnel, there was the Siloam inscription talking about how this tunnel was built. They have found Hezekiah's other wall that was talked about in 2 Chronicles 32, 5 and how it was built on top of houses that verifies what Isaiah said. There's the Lachish relief built by a pagan king in a foreign country talking about the things that he did the Bible talks about. And then you have Taylor's prism that verifies such specific details that the Bible does as well. What does all of this archaeological evidence suggest? It suggests that we have no reason today to doubt the words of the Bible. Specifically, 2 Kings 18 to 20 and 2 Chronicles 28 to 32. And you know, what? if those parts of the Bible are as true with the details that we have, why is there any doubt that the rest of the Bible is true? What does all this archaeological evidence do for us? Friends, I hope it strengthens your faith. And I want you to know, we are just scratching the surface of the evidence There is in the world today, and I'm gonna show it to you, that we can know without a doubt that the words in this book are true, every last one of them. So I'll leave you with this. If this is true, if what's written about the Lord and salvation and sin and heaven and hell and eternity, if it's all true, then what does that mean for you today? And if it's true, what decisions do you need to make today? If it's true, I think you might have some business with God to go over. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your holy word. Lord, even if they never dug one thing up out of the ground, we would still believe in you by faith. We still believe the words of scripture. But Lord, I wanna praise you today, we praise you, because our faith is not as blind as we may have once thought it was. That Lord, in this world, there is truth that we can see with our own eyes. So Lord, our prayer is that you help us see them. But Lord, just like the words of our Savior Jesus, Lord, let us not just be people that hear the words and do no more. But let us be like the wise builders who built their houses on the rock because they hear it and they put it into practice. So Lord, we wanna be people like that. And Lord, it's in your holy name we pray these things. The name of Jesus, amen.